Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about some assembly required, Chapter 5. process of sharing the novella Some Assembly Required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent, began in February with a combination episode for chapters 1 and 2. In the month of March, chapters 3 and 4, or maybe even April for chapter 4, now chapter 5, and in a pretty breakneck pace, at least as I've scheduled it or planned it, May should include the rest of the eight chapters of Some Assembly Required. For now, though, Here is chapter 5, Some Assembly Required. Before we go, you simply have to see this, Chris told Jamie, inviting her in. I thought we were going to the mall. We are. We have to go today, Jamie emphasized. The sale ends today? Well, no, probably not until Friday. But if we want to find anything, we have to go today. We will, we will, Chris assured her. This will only take five minutes, I've set the tape right at the scene I was telling you about. Thirty-something? Yes, you are going to be amazed. This conversation sounds just like you. Jamie sat down as Chris played the tape. The setting is Hope's Kitchen. The conversation begins with Ellen. Did he sleep with her? No. How can you be so sure? They're friends. I've slept with friends. Yeah, did you remain friends afterward? It's usually sort of a North and South Korea kind of arrangement. No further questions. Witness may step down. Come on, Hope. It's just you and me and the major appliances. What do you want me to say? I want you to say that there's this one little rogue molecule of jealousy about this visit from the ghosts of girlfriend's past. Say yes. I'll sleep better if you do. She wasn't his girlfriend. Oh, right. Chris stopped the tape and turned to Jamie. Jamie took off her jacket. Rewind the tape. I've got to see the whole thing. I thought you'd say that, Chris said. Then dinner in the mall? Sure, we'll only lose an hour. In Matinee, Joe Dante has produced one of the year's most notable non-genre films. Funny in places, sentimental throughout, and boosted by a serious counterplot, the biggest challenge facing this movie is finding an audience. Crowds don't come as homegrown as they did for this film's B-movie Roadshow distributor. John Goodman captures both the charm and spirit of this P.T. Barnum-like traveling promoter. Lawrence Woolsey's latest attraction, Mant, is only slightly less believable than the actual movies that would have been produced by such a distributor. From word and deed, it appears that Dante's efforts, more subdued here than any time in his career, intend nothing more than a contrast between the horror fantasy of a B-movie roadshow and the real-life terror of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Both these events play out for the characters in a South Florida military community. Gene Loomis, a 15-year-old military brat, struggles with his own maturity while worrying about his father's fate in the Caribbean. Two things distinguish Matinee from previous coming-of-age fare. First, The effort Dante devoted to his B-movie within the movie pays comic dividends just when the primary plot loses its wit. Second, 
The story by Jericho and Charlie Haas points to an evolutionary path toward what would become known as America's sexual revolution. Early in the movie, our young hero discovers the deception of the older generation when he catches Woolsey staging a protest. Throughout the film, the threat of nuclear war, not only to Gene's dad, but to his entire world, hangs over the boy's head. At the climax, the boy and his first date find themselves locked in a fallout shelter, believing that the world is being destroyed around them. Dante does not labor upon these plot points. Noting his characteristic lack of subtlety in movies like Gremlins and Inner Space, it is likely that these truths emerge spontaneously. Nevertheless, Madinet takes the growing generation's point of view. Kids who are 15 in this movie would reach their early 20s during the youth rebellion at the end of the decade. A coincidence? Well, not within the plot. Our hero matures, both by reconciling himself with the deceit of the older generation and by bravely facing his fear that the world may soon end. When Gene and his young friend find themselves alone in the bomb shelter, the question seems obvious. It isn't whether they will shack up together and start a brave new world. No, the only mystery is when. Matinee may be fascinatingly average entertainment. As a social statement, though, the movie reveals a great deal. Far too often, the sexual revolution and other social ills are blamed on the Woodstock generation. No one seems to ask what made that generation different from the previous one, and why such changes should suddenly develop. Matinee posits an answer. In the movie, we aren't even tempted to fault our protagonist if he and his date take advantage of the fallout around them. As with the characters, can we really be surprised by the actions of a generation filled with many kids who were confident they wouldn't live to regret the consequences of their actions? I think not. Nor can we be surprised by the so-called sexual revolution that spread through that era like a fear. Milk. Either 2% or whole. Diet cream soda. Bread. Your choice. Spaghetti sauce. Mushrooms? Pasta. Spinach tortellini. Can be ravioli, but make sure you get the spinach kind so Danny can have Teenage Mutant Ninja Tortellinis for his birthday dinner. Beer nuts. All right, all right, we're going to be jumping around here for the next couple of days, so let me have some undivided attention, and I'll give you a feel for what we're referencing. First, if you have not finished the reading on Shadow and Syzygy from Young's 1948 lecture, make note that you are behind. People, we aren't reviewing this information today, we're applying it. Do not ask me for a summary, just read the transparencies and do your best. Second, all transparencies come directly from your text, Ion, 1946. This will enable you to follow along directly. Third, and perhaps most important, I will expect your theses first thing Monday morning. On my desk, first thing Monday morning. You can do, as I have done, an example from, quote, real life, unquote, either hypothetical or experiential, or you can pull from literature. Anyone needing an example from literature should refer to last Friday's handout, Willa Cather's Investigation into Paul's Case. I have copies available in my office for anyone who missed Friday. This reading is, of course, optional. Dim the lights, please. Transparency 1. This image is my lady soul, as Spiddler called her. I have suggested the term anima, as indicating something specific for which the expression soul is too general and too vague. The empirical reality summed up under the concept of anima forms an extremely dramatic content of the unconscious. The projection-making factor is the anima, or rather, 
the unconscious as represented by the anima. Whether she appears in dreams, visions, and fantasies, she takes on personified form, thus demonstrating that the factor she embodies possesses all the outstanding characteristics of a feminine being. She is not an invention of the conscious, but a spontaneous product of the unconscious. Young refers to the term soul as general and vague. More to the point, soul is likely inclusive of things we would better be served to ignoring. For the sake of argument, if we proveniently acknowledge the religious implications of, quote, soul, unquote, it becomes clear that Young's phenomenology takes either a restricted view or a dissected view. Depending on your own personal religious convictions, you can take your pick here. Defining our terms, then, as Young does, and does even better in the Zurich Lecture, makes it easy to grasp that anima does not refer to a conscious creation, but rather to a reactive projection of the unconscious mind. In order to apply this information to our coursework, we must dismiss a degree of scholarly skepticism. Anima, as a pure concept, must be restri restricted by definition to a single individual unpersonified feminine form. As such, we know, know, that an anima per se, or for that matter, a real animatic projection, could not be walking the streets of our cities or our fiction. Nevertheless, let's remove those constraints, not have that pre-existing condition in place upon us. We can, simply by granting that this is human nature, to believe on occasion that we see another person who looks just like that girl I knew in grade school. Ignore how simplistic this example is. All of us have shared such an experience. My argument um, is that such a misguided assumption is every bit as valid psychologically as picking that same precise person from memory out of a police mug line to create a vivid example. Transparency 2. Since the anima is an archetype that is found in men, it is reasonable to suppose that an equivalent archetype must be present in women. For just as the man is compensated by a feminine element, so woman is compensated by a masculine one. I do not, however, wish this argument to give the impression that these compensatory relationships were arrived at by deduction. On the contrary, long and varied experience was needed in order to grasp the nature of anima and animus empirically. I don't intend here to be any more sexist than our subject. Note, therefore, ladies, that Young grants the existence of an animus to serve as a correlative to Young's fully explicated anima. So there will be no excuses for not delving deeply, personally, into the topic. For our lectures, though, we are as limited in our focus to female projected images as Young is in his lectures and writing. After all, Carl was male. To speak with any of the sympathy you'd expect, he would have to pull from his experiences. Naturally, those experiences were projected from anima and not from animus. I want papers from an animatic perspective. You pick the sexual orientation. Transparency 3. Although there are, in my experience, a fair number of people who can understand without special intellectual or moral difficulties what is meant by anima and animus, one finds very many more who have the greatest trouble in visualizing these empirical concepts as anything concrete. This shows that they fall a little outside the usual range of experience. They are unpopular precisely because they seem unfamiliar. The consequence is that they mobilize prejudice and become taboo like everything else that is unexpected. Among the challenges you must overcome 
is the difficulty in making these empirical concepts, as Jung calls them, more or less concrete. Those of you who are dealing with a literary figure will not have the benefit, shall we say, of memory. As a result, you would be well served to read your subject at least twice. Recall high school English coursework when you first learned the difference between context and subtext. Now extend that notion of subtext even further. You are not, I repeat, not seeking the subtext, either conscious or subconscious, of the author. Instead, what you are seeking is solely the subtext, if you will, of the character. Let's not take this point for granted. References to the author should be few and far between. While constricting at first, leaving the author's sketchy details, ultimately will make it easier to ascertain the subconscious and projected unconscious of your subject. Consequently, not only will you be challenged to delve into examples from Ion like the rest of your classmates, you also will have to fully anchor your theories to the details provided by the author. In this manner, you will be avoiding the prejudice that Young refers to from those who view non-aesthetic criticism as taboo. Word to the wise, people. I view non-aesthetic criticism as taboo, so you'd better be able to document whatever conclusions you draw. Transparency 4 Not all the concerns of anima and animus are projected. Many appear spontaneously, in dreams and so on, and many more can be made conscious through active imagination. In this way, we find that thoughts and feelings and effects that are alive in us which we would never have believed possible. Naturally, possibilities of this sort seem utterly fantastic to anyone who has not experienced them for himself. For a normal person knows what he thinks. Such a childish attitude on the part of the normal person is simply the rule. So, no one without experience in this field can be expected to understand the real nature of anima and animus. With these reflections, one gets into an entirely new world of psychological experience, provided, of course, that one succeeds in realizing it in practice. Footnoting will be a limited concern for those of you who choose instead to refer to real life. In that regard, your writing task may be shorter. Do not kid yourselves, though. Your writing process may prove much more difficult. Once you commit to taking an active imagination approach, you become somewhat a victim to whatever unexpected thoughts and feelings that may arise. So while your source material is arguably more cooperative, you will find that you no longer have the anchor of a text. The notion, then Paul did this, will not apply to you. Think about that for a moment. Even if you are telling me a well-documented piece of personal history, you must be prepared for a once-familiar tale to be so altered by an animatic view to create certain doubts. Young mentions here the notion of an individual knowing what he thinks can mean so many, many things. Transparency 5. Recapitulating. I should like to emphasize that the integration of the shadow or the realization of the personal unconscious marks the first stage in the analytic process, and that without it, a recognition of anima and animus is impossible. The shadow can be realized only through a relation to a partner, and anima and animus only through a relation to a partner of the opposite sex, because only in such a relation do their projections become operative. We've covered quite a bit of supplemental material 
covered a lot of ground up to this point before getting into this project. I cannot stress the value of our preliminary work. Do not put these readings on the back burner, so to speak. You will not function effectively as an interpreter if you are weak in analytic skills. If any of you have wondered up until now whether you were suddenly studying psychotherapy or theological psychology, you will now realize why we took all those detours. I'm not going to limit the focus of your work by saying that only those who practice the ability to recognize animatic projections will succeed in the research portion of your assignment. I don't know that to be true. I do know this, though. If you struggle getting started, branching, for example, from the author's subtext to the character's subtext, or recalling from a memory not what you felt at a specific moment, but what your mysterious stranger felt at that same moment, then the answer to these sticking points lies in the early chapters we covered. Furthermore, a kickstart probably will come from references to shadow more than syzygy. So before you come to me with doubts about how to start, first confront your own shadow. In other words, completely review pages 165 through 167 and also page 174. Lights up. To review, I want you to pull those experiences. Even if you approach the thesis through literary criticism rather than first person, uh, it won't mitigate the fact that you will be drawing from your own perception of how the soul, forgive the expression, projects itself. Are there any questions? Ah, notes, March 15th, Death Penalty Chapter. Uh, cruel and Unusual Eighth Amendment. Strict Constructionist, early examples of death penalty like uh, Salem Witch Trials. Neoconservative, which is more cruel, uh, immediate punishment or life in prison? In each case, no parole equals you leave in a casket. Uh, Albert Camus, The Plague, The Stranger. You've read that one. You could use that one. Franklin. Franklin, um, wanted to die, asked the judge to impose capital punishment. State didn't have the authority to execute. Which state? Which state? Ask Audrey which state this is. Uh, he ultimately killed two prisoners and a guard. He committed, quote, suicide, unquote. Um, review the chapter. Who was the Arkansas guy who wanted to die? A coalition of churches intervened and delayed. And then Patrick Sherrill, your basic post office shooting spree. Wasn't there a punk band back in high school, Patty Sherrill and the Postmen, with their underground single, Neither Snow Nor Rain? Patty Sherrill and the Postmen. Just a derivative Sharon Tate's baby, probably. Uh, Dahmer, found in trial to be sane, but not executed. Who is more likely to face the death penalty? A cannibal or a postal employee on the verge of a nervous breakdown? Clear and present danger standard. Underline that. Clear and present danger standard. This ignores the view of victims and victims groups. Instead, execute only as a means to protect society from a clear and present danger at the hands of a specific type of criminal mind from whom society would never, ever be safe. Does this apply more to Cheryl or to Dahmer? Cheryl. If he doesn't work in another high-stress job, then all's well. Dahmer. If he ever escapes, he would probably kill again. And for that matter, eat again. That's offensive. Audrey, that is offensive. Uh, drawback to the clear and present danger standard comes from Manson case better than any other. Since he hasn't been and won't be executed, this death penalty would never be applied in a manner consistent with equal protection. Did he actually commit the murders? Circle that. Did he actually commit the murders? Uh, test notes. 
Be ready for Victim's Revenge and that Franklin case. Dear Editor, I cannot begin to tell you how disappointed I was after seeing the movie Matinee, based on the advice of your reviewer, Bob Marshall. He led me to expect something funny. It wasn't. He led me to expect something mature. It wasn't. He led me to expect a serious statement. Well, here's the only serious statement I have to make. Please dump this guy and hire a real reviewer. I'm familiar with the excuse that he is some kind of sociological film critic. Still, his niche approach was tiring enough in reviews of movies I liked. Broadcast news was still entertaining despite his oddball interpretation. With matinee, Marshall's excesses are inexcusable. The world should expect more. In fact, even if the paper doesn't want to think it can get more out of a reviewer, at least a change would give unsuspecting moviegoers less useless interpretation to wade through in pursuit of entertainment. All I want to know is if the show was enjoyable, a warning about length and offensiveness, and enough storyline to avoid most surprises. I don't want anything more. Sincerely, Teresa Magnuson. Dan Carlin. Common sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. is truth to the claim that I've been spending most of calendar year 2020 trying to find a home for Nadia Boltzweber as a different drummer. The challenge has not been that a place was difficult to find. The challenge has been there were too many good choices to pick from. I could have named her last week because of the sex education content at the end of chapter four. I instead chose to put her here and there's a couple of reasons for it. Still within the plot and the movie review of uh, film matinee, there's some talk about the sexual revolution, uh, bad things that happen when you lie to kids. I also believe that in her own way, she takes a certain scholarly approach to progressive Christianity. And if nothing else, the, uh, you know, the writings and the thoughts of Carl Jung qualify as a scholarly approach. But as early as January in Inappropriate Conversations number 222, Displeasure, despite naming Ruth Westheimer, Dr. Ruth, as the different drummer of that episode... We probably spent as much time talking about the work of Boltz Weber. I have mentioned her in shows since, as a matter of fact, but I've held off a couple of key pieces of writings to address right here in the Different Drummers segment. I will do the traditional uh, Wikipedia-based biographical introduction, but for the most part, I want to focus on a couple of really key readings. I'll preview them to some degree, Again, because of the focus on sex education, the sexual revolution, uh, lying to teenagers and the negative consequences of that, I, I do want to refer to a somewhat long passage, but a crucially important passage from her book, uh, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, came out just last year. I also want to hearken back to a blog post that I put up just a few months after my mother died in the year 2017, 
at inappropriateconversations.org, there's a section of tags on the right navigation bar. And generally speaking, these tags are tied to the different drummer. If you were to click on one for performance, for example, or for podcasting, what it would do is isolate past episodes of inappropriate conversations where the different drummer would qualify as a performer in the first case or a podcaster in the second case. And by using tags to do it, in many cases, I'm able to apply several tags to a particular different drummer. It's not unusual to find one who qualifies for acting and music and painting all at the same time, for example. But also, the top one of those tags is simply called articles, and in that, it connects to the blog posts. Every blog post I've ever put up in the 10-plus years of inappropriateconversations.org is a blog post that has been tagged as an article, as articles in this case, and the one from May 12, 2017, I called Nobody's Child, and it began with the sentence, I am no longer a child. But what I meant by that was, I am now at the point in my life when both of my parents have passed away. And trying to deal with the emotional impact of that passing away has a lot to do with a passage that I want to share from Boltz Weber's book, Accidental Saints. The chapter in that book called Parlors was, to be frank, as I cover in this blog post, the only real way I found closure upon facing finally, realistically, uh, the death of my mother. In other words, without ever having met Nadia Boltz Weber face to face, She has been, in every sense of the word, a pastor to me for, well, pretty much since the day I first heard her interviewed on National Public Radio, around the time that she was probably doing a book tour on her first book, Pastrix. Nadia Boltz-Weber is an author, Lutheran minister, and public theologian, according to Wikipedia. She served as the founding pastor for House of All Sinners and Saints, a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in Denver, Colorado until July of 2018. She is also a three-time New York Times best-selling author. Bowles Weber is known for her unusual approach to reaching others through her church. Heavily tattooed, her work in the church is considered part of a new reformation by scholar and writer Diana Butler Bass. Bowles Weber grew up in Colorado Springs with a fundamentalist family, but at 18 years old she started getting tattoos and considered herself to be kind of one of society's outsiders, a path that led her to alcoholism, drug abuse, and stand-up comedy, not necessarily in any order of importance there. In 1991, she became sober, and as of 2020, has remained so for 28 years. Prior to her ordination, she was a stand-up comedian and worked in the restaurant industry. Boltz Weber felt that she heard the call to service in 2004 when she was asked to eulogize a friend who had committed suicide. In 2008, she was ordained as a pastor. She started her own church, the House for All Sinners and Saints, which is often shortened to just house in her parlance. One third of her church population is the LGBT community. She also has a minister of fabulousness named Stuart, who is a drag queen. Her church is also very welcoming to people with drug addiction, depression, and even those who are not believers of her faith. As a feminist in 2018, she called for women to send her their purity rings to be melted down into a vagina sculpture as part of healing the psychic damage the purity movement of the 1990s had done. At the Makers Conference on Valentine's Day 2019, Weber gave the sculpture to American feminist and political activist Gloria Steinem. She speaks at conferences across the world, and she has often given talks on how faith and feminism can coexist. That is uh, Wikipedia's perspective on Nadia Volts-Weber. 
I would call your attention both to her books and to Inappropriate Conversations 222 for more information and to tie back to that topic of uh, pleasure, sexuality, the lies we tell people about pleasure and sexuality. I'd like to dive back in at this point and share a passage from Boltzweber's book Shameless uh, from a chapter called The Fireplace. I'm going to dive in right at a point where she is discussing the question of things parents do to try to keep their kids away from information about sexuality, including opposition to sex education and the abstinence-only movement, more generally speaking. Weber writes this, If we're honest with ourselves, we could very quickly answer why parents and the church have so often obsessed over teenagers and sex. Fear. Yes, sex has its dangers. In a footnote, she says, Respected sex therapist Esther Perel said in an interview with Patty Oswell, quote, In the U.S., sex is the risk factor. In Europe, being irresponsible is the risk factor. Sex is natural and part of the human development. That's the fundamental difference of the kind of education we get. And I think the U.S. can do better. From Therapist Uncensored Podcast, Episode 46, Redefining Infidelity. American adults who support abstinence-only education for children and teens are being irresponsible. Yes, sex has its dangers. It would be foolish to suggest otherwise. Obviously, as parents, we are afraid of our children making a temporary choice with a permanent consequence, a moment of pleasure followed by a lifetime of sickness or premature parenthood. And more simply, we don't want our children to experience heartbreak or use sex the way I have used sex at different points in my own life, namely as a way to medicate loneliness or to feel worthy. These are all reasonable fears. But maybe I, as a parent, also fear the mystery of sex, because I know how I myself have been swallowed whole by desire, how I have lost myself in a connection with my lover, lover in a way that is terrifying, a way that I cannot control or even define. I know that when I see my lover, something within me uncoils, that which had been contained by social convention and protective psychology and basic clothing for most of my adult life, most of my waking hours, quickens from within. It is a wildness, part velvet, part forest fire, a wildness that desires in equal parts to consume and caress. Desire is tricky. It is destruction and insistence and risk and the goddamn Easter bunny all at once. It makes every edge blur like a thumb run over a charcoal line. Sex can be procreative, a way of creating new life. It can be intimate, a way for love to be expressed between partners. It can be revelatory, a way in which we discover ourselves and another. It can be boring, mind-blowing, or regrettable. It can be a beautiful aspect of human flourishing, and it can be a humiliating aspect of human degradation. It can be the safest place we can go or the most dangerous thing we can do. It can be obligation or joy. It can be deadly. It can be life. Given all this, maybe it makes sense that we reach for some rules. Rules can be helpful, of course. Society has to function, and humans can be pretty horrible to each other. We steal each other's shit, and we try to hide money from the government so that we don't have to pay our share. We simply cannot rely on everyone being good. This is why we have laws, whether passed by government or intuited through social norms. But religious law can never keep us as safe as we think it will. For instance, 
telling teenagers, these wild, beautiful, insane beings filled with hormones, that they must abstain from sex and never think about sex is seldom effective. And even when it does work, there can be harsh consequences. When our teenagers do manage to shut down their own sexual responses and desires, they can be left later in their lives trying to connect frayed wires, strangers, to themselves as sexual beings. The main thing accomplished through these efforts is that adults feel like we're doing something. We think we are protecting them. We think we are keeping them safe from harm. We think we are keeping them pure. And these are noble instincts. But what we're more likely doing is projecting our own bullshit onto our kids. The fear of our own desires, the peer pressure and cultural norms of our religious community. We are stunting our children by withholding the tools and the wisdom they need for a healthy sexual future. Or we are sending them straight to their peers or to the internet for guidance. My parents used to have a description for that. We send them to learn it in the streets. And the streets is perhaps the most dangerous place to learn about something as critically important and complex as human sexuality. I find it ironic that the passage I chose to share from uh, Boltzweber's book Shameless, which connects to some of the themes on the sex side of the inappropriate conversations sort of mantra this year, I mean, the image that I use online that was shared with me at the very beginning of this venture by a friend of mine describes inappropriate conversations as being about religion, sex, politics, and drugs. I rarely get to drugs. I've spent more time on sex this year than I normally do, to be honest. It's usually somewhere in the realm of the main stock in the stew being religion and politics. But if you look at the frank sexual discussion, either in talkbacks or in new episodes this year... A lot of the focus has been on parents and the lies that we tell our kids. And that ties really directly into Chapter 5 of the novella Some Assembly Required. The movie review, the critic, the uh, letter to the editor response to the movie review, and so forth. My parents were believers in sex education when I was at the age to receive such sex education. I talked about it in the Talkback episode released in very early January. I believe it was Inappropriate Conversations, maybe 13 sex education in the Protestant way, at least the way we used to do it then, not the way we would probably do it now. And I go into some detail there about it, but that was what my parents' worldview definitely was then. Better to learn it in home than to learn it in the streets. But it makes it ironic that I struggled so much to deal with the kind of the nuts and bolts reality of my mother's death. My mother's death raised in me a lot of questions. And I found the best answers Maybe not the perfect answers, but the best answers to those questions in a book by Boltz Weber called Accidental Saints, a chapter called Parlors. I want to share my perspective on that chapter from the blog post that I put out in 2017, May of that year, called Nobody's Child. Starting with me, it calls out when I begin quoting her. Perhaps I don't need to say that Parlors is a brilliant chapter in a wonderful book. Consider this a recommendation. I will share the passage that blessed me with an audience I've been lacking. There is so much more, though. Clearly, the author knows this, because a year ago, in 2017, she shared the chapter that I'm linking to on a Pathios blog. Here's that paragraph or so from this chapter. As sacred as love is, human love is never pure or perfect. We just aren't that kind of species. There are cracks in everything, and even the most shining aspects of our lives, even love, or perhaps especially love, 
come with imperfection. Often, when someone dies, we feel a combination of love and something else, and this too is holy and entirely human. And they don't cancel each other out. Love and anger. Love and disappointment. Love and emptiness. We always love imperfectly. It is the nature of human love, and it is okay. But despite all the love in the world, when it comes down to it, none of us can know the reality of another. We can share circumstances, personality traits, even parents, Yet as much as we move through our lives alongside each other, none of us can fully know the internal reality of another. Nadia Boltz Weber from her book, Accidental Saints. Picking up with my comments in that blog post. I'm hopeful that inappropriate conversations cannot be limited to a single point, and that I have more points and questions to raise in the future. Surely one of those points, though, is that we Christians too often presume that we can know the inner reality of other people and know it so well as to justify abominations like denying them communion or trying to separate them from the people who love them most for reasons that have nothing to do with what Jesus taught and demonstrated. The other mistake is believing the very imperfections that make us human either separate us from God or justify the all-too-human tendency to play God ourselves by presuming we can or should separate the sheep from the goats, so to speak. That answered prayer that I've mentioned before on inappropriate conversations was God telling me that I shouldn't remain silent. I needed to speak up, because in unexpected ways the words might be more than just my own. Avoiding the risk of getting it wrong often, in fact, is itself too risky, too high a price. It's far better to say something that should not be said than to not say something that should be said. The right words at the right time have often, for me, been a call to worship this week. As Leonard Cohen put it, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack In everything, that's how the light gets in. As I kind of mentioned earlier, sometimes you hit a different drummer and it's pretty clear that it's something you've been meaning to do for years. And to be honest, it's been obvious to anybody who's listened closely to Inappropriate Conversations and Talkback episodes in 2020... I've been meaning to do it on an almost weekly basis this year, and I'm pleased and relieved to say that I'm finally here, connecting Boltz Weber with some of the elements of Chapter 5 of the novella Some Assembly Required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. To end this episode, let me dive into the end notes for Chapter 5. Many of the references, I think, will be obvious because of the literary and filmic name-dropping throughout. The first one, from the quote, did he ever, all the way through the, quote, oh, right, was 30-something. Tell a play produced by Marshall Herskovitz and Edward Zwick. That episode, named Undone, aired on April 12th, 1988. It was written by Joseph Doherty. Reference to Matinee, film directed by Joe Dante, 1993. Mant, from within the film Matinee, Ibid. Gremlins, film directed by Joe Dante, 1984. Inner Space, Film directed by Joe Dante, 1987. 
Teenage Mutant Ninja, a reference to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, syndicated television. Shadow and Syzygy, Carl Jung, Aspects of the Feminine, Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton University Press, 1982, pages 165 to 179. Ion, The Phenomenology of the Self, essay by Carl Jung, 1946. Paul's Case, short story by Willa Cather, 1905. Quoting, This image is, Carl Jung, Aspects of the Feminine, Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton University Press, 1982, pages 170 and 171. Quoting, since the anima is, young, ibid, page 171. Quoting, although there are, young, ibid, page 175. Quoting, not all concerns, young, ibid, page 176. Quoting, recapitulating, I should, young, ibid, page 179. The Plague, novel by Albert Camus, 1948. The Stranger, Novel by Albert Camus, 1942. Broadcast News, film directed by James L. Brooks, 1987. The End Notes, for Some Assembly Required, Chapter 5. Welcome to This Week in Gay. What is This Week in Gay, you say? Well, This Week in Gay was a podcast hosted by Anthony Anselmo that featured a cast of rotating participants. Each week, the participants would discuss major news items impacting the LGBT community. But after a few years, Anthony was ready to move on to some other priorities in his life. Since then, many of the participants and listeners have longed for the show's return. So we're happy to bring you This Week in Gay If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page, which is listed as a cause. There also is a page for the other podcast on this feed, Walk the Earth. Both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations are part of inappropriateconversations.org. Intros in the audio form can be found for past episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and some of the episodes of Walk the Earth at SoundCloud. I can be found there as IC underscore Greg. This is also my handle on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg. Inappropriate conversations can be found in many formats. Stitcher Smart Radio, among others. Podcatchers, like uh, Apple Podcasts, and Dogcatcher, and Podomatic, and all all those sort of ways that we would interact with podcasts. We're at a point in time where the cabin fever element of a shelter and home as the world, the United States included, deals with the pandemic for the COVID-19 coronavirus, could lead, and in some cases for some of the podcasts that I enjoy most, has led to an increase in released material. I tend not to function that way. I've put a schedule out for myself, and I try and fail, but still try to keep to that schedule. So I don't believe that the pattern of releases is ever going to get anywhere more frequent than weekly, for example. But through the months, uh, the late April part and into May, and even into June, I do intend to keep a closer to a weekly clip. I just wanted everyone to know this has nothing to do with being at home. I am blessed to be still 
employed and working from home, so the hours of availability to record and listen to podcasts has not changed. And in fact, the fact that I don't have a commute every day, and that something like, I don't know, three, four hours of my time in the car has been cut down to almost nothing, has cut into the time that I have available to listen to podcasts. If you're in the same boat I'm in, that there's a lot of podcasts you enjoy, and the quantity of podcasts seems to be releasing at a pace that it's hard to keep up with, just know that I'm trying not to add to that burden. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.